This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good evening and welcome to Plato's Cave here on 3RRR, 102.7 FM. My name is Thomas Caldwell. This is a film criticism show. We're going to be here for the next hour. And I'm joined by regular Plato's Cave host Cerise Howard. Good evening, Cerise. Good evening, Thomas. And we have with us our favourite special guest presenter, Hayley Inch, is back for, I think this is round three, isn't this it? This is round three. This is probably where everything just falls apart. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a great way to kick off. But Hayley, thank you again for coming in at late notice. We uh, really mu- very much enjoy having you on air with us. So oh, good. <laughs> glad for you to be sitting in with us and once this again. This does actually mark the first time we've been in the trenches <gasps> together. So yes, which is very is, exciting. Yes. So let's Sorry. not get blasé about Hayley being here no, yet again. This no. is First. This is the first time you two have been on air together, isn't it? It's it there is. we go. This and now I have a whole set of Play-Dohs, so it's all good now. <laughs> you, you, you've collected all the, the key players. <laughs> um, before we go any further, I'd like to give a big thank you and shout-out to Phoebe Squared for the last three hours of excellent music and radio with Maps. He will be back next Monday at 4pm doing it all again, and we always look forward to that. What a great show to arrive to the studio while listening to. Uh, always an absolute pleasure. Now, on our show tonight, we have three films for you we are going to discuss. We're going to look at the new film by Guillermo del Toro, uh, Crimson Peak. It's a gothic horror set in the late 19th century where a young woman leaves behind her life to live with her new husband and his sister in an isolated mansion that is well past its prime. Then in Legend, real-life English gangsters, the K-Twins, are depicted on screen once more, this time portrayed by Tom Hardy, playing both of the notorious brothers, who ran most of the organised crime in London's East End during the 1950s and 1960s. And finally, we're going to take a look at the recent home entertainment release of Heaven Knows What, a low-budget, independent American film about a young heroin addict in New York. And it stars a young woman whose actual life as a heroin addict provided the source material for the film. But first, it's gothic horror time, Crimson Peak. Cerise. Yeah, Crimson Peak. Um, Guillermo del Toro's... uh, It's not a return to form, frankly. Get that out the way first. So it's not already. It's, it's, it's not. No. Oh, good. No. Okay, we're, we're out the gates Gosh, already. It's pretty. It's pretty. <laughs> I think we're on the same page. Let's go for it. All right. Look, our Mia, Mia Wozikowski, who's making a bit of a thing of appearing in gothic flavoured films. There's been Stoker in recent years. Jane, loved, yeah. Jane Eyre, not terribly long ago. Yep. She's, but I'm not quite sure what it is about her that people are seeing, but they're casting her. She's this sort of wafy, ephemeral type, isn't she? Well, she's yeah. becoming that type. I think there's an awful lot more to her, but. I do too. She's starting to play a very similar role over and over again. Whereas Jessica Chastain here is cast quite against type. Um, I, in fact, forgot it was even her. She's uh, not the flame-haired type in this at all. Rather, a spooky brunette seemingly with a peculiar relationship uh, with her brother, Tom Hiddleston, uh, who plays the baronet, Thomas Sharp, a parasite. Um, uh, That is uh, Edith Cushing Mears. Well, was his first opinion upon hearing tell of the this young man coming to town to try to charm her father, who is a self-made man, well-to-do in Buffalo, New York. Uh, there's a bit of class warfare breaks out before a strange love affair emerges, which is going to whisk Edith away from uh, late 19th century New York state uh, to some peculiar part of England where the architecture is even spookier and rather more derelict. 
And, uh, look, it doesn't matter where Edith is, she sees ghosts. This is outlined to us at the very beginning of the film. Uh, she sees her mother's ghost early on, who warns her about the rest of the film. Beware of Crimson Peak, she advises. Um, or something to that effect. And, look, uh, gosh, this film is silly. Um, <laughs> uh, and and it, it has pretensions to sophistication. It, it is one of these films that it plays up towards the mise en abime effect, which is to say that it suggests that it is its... It is itself within itself, if you know what I mean. That the film is perhaps yep. the work of the protagonist. She is a writer of ghost stories. So perhaps the whole thing we are seeing is in fact a story she is writing. Or is she in the story? Is she... Who's... You know, these are questions. But it's not terribly interesting dwelling on them. Or is it? Well, honest? no, I, I'm really glad you raised that because there's some really self-aware moments at the start where she's talking about her own story writing and she very explicitly says, I, wrote, I write stories with ghosts in them. They're not ghost stories. And by the way, the ghosts are just metaphors yeah, for the yeah. past. I mean, this is explicit dialogue telling us how to regard the presence of ghosts in this film. Yeah. Although I don't know whether that's helpful or not in the slightest to, making, to helping us enjoy or understand it any better. Well, she seeks the, the thoughts of uh, the baronet with whom she is falling in love and he gives her some advice at various intervals and then the plot shifts slightly or does it? I mean it doesn't seem to necessarily reflect the advice he's given so it's not made that explicit that perhaps the whole thing is a work in progress uh, a literary work in progress anyway I found this um, captivating uh, aesthetically I mean it looks stunning the influence of Mario Bava is all over this film and other Italian gothic uh, thrillers, romances, as well as earlier films, as any amount of Rebecca or Gaslight woven into the fabric of this film. But um, I wish it had more of that Italian flavour. The the Barva um, or the, the the films where Barbara Steele made a star for herself, usually in dual roles. Actually, this would have been more effective if Mia Vosikovska had played two roles, or Jessica Chastain had played two, and that otherness would have been more interesting, the, the antagonism. We'll come to Tom's Hardy a bit later. In <laughs> later. Um, but, look, this is still uh, a, a quite compelling film. It's so beautiful to, to look at. Um, it's just that it's all a bit silly, and it lacks any of the, the, the depth um, of his earlier films where the, the gothic was in full flourish, like The Devil's Backbone and Pan's mm. Labyrinth, mm. where something of actual uh, 20th century history was woven very um, uh, integral, in, integrally, inte with great integrity into the fabric of the story, the narrative. Whereas this here, it's all just, it's, it's a trifle, but it is a very pretty trifle, and, one, and on one or two occasions, actually quite horrifying trifle. There is some brutal violence, which comes as a bit of a shock when it does, and it's very Italian horror-flavoured too. Um, a particularly nasty event is extremely reminiscent of scenes in Dario Argento's Deep Red, and of course there is a lot of deep red in a film called Crimson Peak. <laughs> yeah, it's those early films of Aguilero del Toro, um, you know, how they tied in Spanish, the history of fascism in Spain into the horror, and they're so effective. Um, and, yeah, this doesn't have that kind of political allegory, really. I mean, it kind of very vaguely touches on some kind of class conflict. I mean, she's very much identified as American and working class, and that means she had to work. Her family, rather, had to work for their wealth, as opposed to these English aristocrats who got it all through privilege. Um, and then this is sort of the basis of this Bluebeard 
story. It's, it's yet another spin on the, the Bluebeard slash Gaslight s- story, except it's signposted a mile off. I don't know whether that's intentional or not, but pretty much nothing in this film was a surprise to me, mm. even when we found out a little bit more about the, the, the nature of um, the, 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 the brother and, and the sister. I mean, all that I... When that happened, I was like, yeah, I was pretty sure that's where this was going. Yeah. Um, and it does look great, but I couldn't get over the the kind of feeling that it was like looking at concept art. I was looking at the draft art that was going to be used to make the real film. And I know I often beat this this drum, and we probably all do on Plato's Cave a little bit too much, but the CGI, it's just not tangible. I had no sense of this being real, especially all the ghost effects just looked a bit rubbish. And if you had some of those effects done with practical special effects, they would have been magnificent. There's a scene where a ghost rises out of the floor, and it just looks like someone's dabbled on their computer for a few days. I kept on thinking of that scene in Hellraiser where where this creature, I forget the context of what happens in Hellraiser, but there's a bit where a demon or a devil or reincarnation of somebody comes up to the floor, and it's all practical effects, and it's so grisly and visceral and, and, and disturbing. It, um, you know, I just yearn for that kind of thing uh, f- from this film. I mean, yeah, it's nice to look at, but you know what? I kept on wishing Tim Burton had the reins of this film. I reckon he would have done magnificent things with this because he's good at doing gothic horror and mixing the violence with some of the more eccentric elements. I mean, things like Sleepy Hollow or Sweeney Todd. I'm out. Of, there's probably not too many people in the world who would say that these days, but I wish this was a Tim Burton film. Oh, Tim Burton '99, yeah, totally. So it's a totally Sleepy Hollow vibe that you know would would be really successful with this kind of material. I think you know I felt really. I, I was enormously entertained by this movie, but I was also enormously disappointed because I kind of felt that you know. In, in, in a lot of ways, I was the target market for that audience because it is essentially a gothic romance and every kind of thing it's signposting throughout plot-wise, uh, genre-wise is it's almost like it's going through this checklist of, oh, okay, we've got, we, we've got the heroine, we've got the hero, we've got the creepy mansion, we've got the creepy sister, we've got the ghosts, we've got all of this. And I almost felt like that I was playing this kind of extended game of gothic bonkers bingo mm-hmm. where when the big climactic moment happens, I very nearly stood up in the cinema and shouted bingo because <laughs> yeah. that's what I was anticipating the entire time was going to happen and it did. And like 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 both of you have said, it's a it, it is a glorious thing in a lot of ways to look at in terms of the set, the costuming. I want all of Mia's costumes. I want her hairdresser to come and do my hair. I'd look fabulous every day. It'd be excellent. But it's not a film of surprises. It's not a film that you're going to go into and apart from maybe a few jumps and startles, you're not really going to be scared. And I'm a horror weenie. I'm scared at everything. And this movie didn't really give anything before you know beyond a you know startled jolt at one point and and that was pretty much it i think performances wise i quite like mia in her in her gothic strain that she's been doing recently i think she's very good i think she's probably the strongest person at work here i don't know if you guys agree um jessica chastain is yes she is uh cast against type and i think she's enormously miscast i did not enjoy her at all she seemed to be floundering and not really having a terribly good idea of how to play an enormously villainous gothic villain um and tom hiddleston i you know i normally enjoy him i also kind of found him a bit 
plan, but I think it's because he and Mia do not mesh at all as 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 the central romantic couple. They just seem slightly off. There is one scene where it's essentially a sex scene. You get to see Twiddleston's butt if anyone's really excited about that, but it is unfortunately a very unerotic scene. You kind of just sit there going, oh, okay. Oh, we're back at the house now. Hope there's some ghosts. That might be more exciting. It is bizarrely yeah. chased, isn't it, it actually, is. from yeah. the kind of film, yeah. yeah. Even with Hiddleston butt. Yeah, I know. It, 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 I, I think that what the film is trying to do, it's really harking back to, like, Victoriana gothic and and those kind of... I, I was thinking of so many um, classic Victorian gothic novels, like even Beyond the Brontes and and um, Wilkie Collins and that sort of thing. Um, so that's clearly what Del Toro, I think, is drawing a lot in terms thematically. Um, I, I, but I think it just, yeah, it comes across as slightly sterile and, and not terribly sexy. Yeah, it does lack that spark. And uh, all of the, the actors, even in the character parts, just seem a bit cartoonish. Uh, so there's the, the PI who does a bit of homework for uh, Edith's dad. And he's just this doer-looking, frog-like sort of The Welsh actor from Torchwood. Uh, oh, yeah. Ben Gorman. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, just, it's, it's a really terrible non-performance. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and Dr. Alan McMichael. I think someone's taking the McMichael a little oh, bit with a yeah. name like that. Charlie Hunnam is so bland oh. as the uh, do-gooder. Uh, he couldn't even decide on an accent. Where was he from? I was who wondering knows? if he, was, he thought he was a Hemsworth for a period there because he was yeah. Hemsworth-esque. Uh, I had no he idea who he actually was behind the beard. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, there, there, there's a lot that underwhelmed, alas, about this film, but the costuming was great. The costuming's amazing. And, look, I, I was entertained. I think it's the sort of movie where you, if you got your friends around, got drunk, made up those bingo cards and then went into it, you'd have a marvellous <laughs> time. But I think, as, yeah, as a proper compelling work of, of, of gothic cinema, I think it's quite lacking. There is some nice stuff with, with the idea of the house falling apart and how nature is intruding in the house. I mean, there's some beautiful scenes where, you know, she's walking through leaves falling in, in the house or the snow falling. I mean, that that is lovely, but I still didn't get a sense of them working with that kind of interior-exterior folding in on itself mm. idea. I mean, it was there visually, but I couldn't mm. find it thematically. And they kept on going on about how the whole idea of this house is it's it's, it's set on um, a big clay reserve, this, this red clay, which is, you know, where the Crimson Peak name comes from, that looks like blood in the snow, and it's this potential energy source for the future if, if mined properly. So there's sort of allusions to the, in, you know, the, the industrial age about to, to happen, and, you know, the advent of machinery replacing labour, all that sort of thing. It doesn't go anywhere. It's just n- not explored. I mean, how you got such a literal idea of this, the earth looking like blood, and it's never really exploited thematically or visually. Well, folks looking for a bit of uh, grist for the monstrous feminine mill there too, kind mm. of almost literally in terms of this thing being constructed outside, don't have enough to work with either, even mm. though there are suggestions in a, a true gothic sense of horrible things having happened within the house leading to bodies of a certain persuasion being somehow interred there. But even then, it's just not enough. It seems a little throwaway, a bit glib. This film is a bit glib. This is a problem. It's a, yeah. it's a glib gothic uh, romance without much sp- uh, sexual spark, so even the romance is a bit... Uh, well, yeah. It's a bit sad, really, isn't it? I was hoping at least one of us would like Crimson Peak to try to encourage the others to to, to, to look for what I may have been missing in this, but I think we've all concluded that it's, it's an OK film. It's OK. But a bit disappointing, considering the highs that um, Del Toro has reached in the past. Three, triple, ah. 
legend is the story of the notorious Cray twins, Reggie and Ronnie, who ruled the London crime scene in the 1960s from the East End. And it's viewed through the lens, as so many films attempting to humanise gangsters are, of one of the women in the Cray's lives, in this case Reggie's wife Frances, who's played by Australian actress Emily Browning. And the interesting thing about legend, uh, in comparison to other films that have focused on the Cray's, is the fact that uh, director Brian Hegeland, who was the uh, screenwriter of LA Confidential, actually, so there's some crime caper cred for you, um, he decided to have the twins played by one actor, who is Tom Hardy, who, of course, we would all know from Mad Max Fury Road, Bronson, Locke, a lot of things where he's kind of coming across as one of the far more interesting actors rolling around at the moment and um i am personally of the opinion that you know if you can't have two uh, one tom hardy (laughs) two is even better and if i'm going to make some kind of like you know flimsy bridge between the previous film and this one i think we were all kind of on the same page of crimson peak being a gothic film that kind of takes all of the tropes of the gothic genre and doesn't really do anything new with them whereas what legend's kind of doing is is coming across initially as your very standard uh gangster picture true crime picture uh, you know, you're, you're talking through the scope of a woman in their life. She has this incessant voiceover that happens. You go through their rise. You see their inevitable fall. And you can pretty much pick everything that's going to happen during the film. But I think the difference here is the tenor of the two dual performances of Tom Hardy he's doing something very, very different than I think we normally see in these kind of gangster pictures, in that he's very much, you know, a one-slash-two-man juggernaut undercutting any sense of glamorization of these guys that I think the film is is possibly trying to, to promote itself. So you end up with this strange, you know, you have dual performances and you have the duality of the film where it's, it's this piece attempting to glamorize these real-life criminals while by the same token its lead actor is is going against that at every single opportunity and i just found it fascinating mm, thomas oh, oh okay i see um <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, yeah because i mean a, a big thing about the craze mystique was they became celebrities they were sort of larger than life celebrities like to to hang out with them um you know people like morrissey wrote songs about them and kind of were semi-infatuated with them they were kind of like these robin hood figures because they came out of this very poor area of london and they spread their largesse around the east end very liberally and a lot of people had a lot of time for them and will defend them and yeah but by the same token they were murderers and extortionists and you know and i think the film this this film legend goes to great great length to show you how different the two brothers were and Tom Hardy gives radically different performances for both. I mean, I'm going to get these confused. Reggie was probably the more serious one who maybe there was a part of him that did yearn to go straight where Ronnie was the one who just loved the criminal element and this film makes it very clear from almost the start that he's, he's criminally insane. Mm-hmm. He's he's um, a, a psychopath who needs medication to keep himself under control. You know, he, he loves a bit of ultraviolence. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very, you know, it's a very different 
version of their story to what was in the 1990 film The Craze. Um, I might just use that as a bit of a comparison point because I think that's also an interesting film. This is where the the two brothers were played by... um, uh, another set of twins, um, Gary Kemp and Martin Kemp, who are actors but better known as musicians uh, in Spandau Ballet. Um, and th- this 1990 film covers their birth up until the same point that legend ends. But with different different things that the two films focus on, um, The Craze has much more stuff about the mother in it. Um, s- similar stuff with Francis, uh, Francis who is the, the woman who marries... Reggie. Reggie, thank you. And also the boy's aunt plays quite a prominent figure in, in the craze. Um, and it's interesting just how these films, they may be set in the same period, but they reflect the times they were made in. So the, the, the strong, tough mother figure in the 1990s film is very much evoking Thatcher. Um, that film had a very interesting feminist streak running through it. There is a scene in that original film where the aunt does this amazing monologue about the effect of war on that whole generation, and she talks about how men get to be heroes or monsters, but either way, they get to do what they want, while the women are expected to effectively be their domestic slaves. And, and this, this ties in very heavily with what happens to, to Francis. Now, I've got to say, having looked at photos of the, the Cray brothers, I think Tom Hardy probably better captures the physique of the, of, of those guys. I don't know anything about the true origins of this story, but my suspicion is the Kemp brothers perhaps gave a more nuanced interpretation of who they were as, as not that radically different, but the, the subtle differences were enough. I, I found Tom Hardy in Ronnie Cray mode a little bit too extreme. It really seemed over the top. And then the other thing that kind of kept me at arm's length with this version of the story in Legend is it felt like it had a bit of a toe in the Guy Ritchie pool of the violence is set to pop music and there's lots of sort of, sort of um, what do you call it, laddie one-liners, which kind of put me offside sometimes, which I think was counteractive to that attempt to demythologise. Mm. I nevertheless enjoy this film. I enjoyed, I enjoyed both films. I think they're both flawed for different reasons, but I, I enjoyed them, but only to a point. Yeah, likewise. Though, um, I may have enjoyed them for slightly different reasons, and I also felt the shadow of another... Uh, another version of the craze over this film too and that goes back to a, a, a much revered Monty Python sketch of many many years back about the Piranha Brothers <laughs> um, and one of whom especially had some sort of uh, terrible phobia about a giant hedgehog uh, called Spiny Norman pursuing him through the streets of London <laughs> calling out his name you know, Dinsdale yeah. oh, I've seen that yes, yes. of course you have that's about the craze it's it highly yeah. about the craze it's, it's almost contemporary with the craze so it's just hard to imagine that now actually someone uh, having a go at that mythology even back then and mocking it yeah. and mocking also the, the coverage of it because it was a huge press phenomenon by all accounts at the time. They were celebrities and so was the copper chasing them who's mm. utterly gormless in this film, Christopher Eccleston, but not quite as gormless as, uh, well, many of the uh, other figures here, the other villains, the other gangsters, um, the, the enemies, who we don't see much of. They're either dispatched or just forgotten about. And even Paul Bessany turns up briefly in a, in one a scene cameo. or two. Weirdly, and yeah. then we don't hear about him again. But he was supposed to be some kingpin of some other clan mm. arrival. And then, we, yeah, it's just weird. The yeah. other um, thing that I was, the other uh, pop cultural reference uh, um, I was feeling throughout this was actually. 
uh, especially when he was Ronnie, especially when Tom Hardy was channeling Ronnie. Um, I was thinking I, I could only hear Steve Coogan, and sometimes actually Steve Keegan, Coogan doing Michael Caine. Steve Coogan as Alan Partridge doing Michael Caine was what Ronnie <laughs> sounded uncannily like to me. <laughs> and it sort of gave me the irrits. But also, uh, yeah, I, I know what you mean about the Ronnie performance was a bit over overcooked, but it was also very funny. And the scene where he actually doesn't say anything, he's simply in a, a line-up. Is, is hysterical as the the camera hones in on his goggling eyes and just he just growls doesn't he yeah, yeah. just yeah it's, it's, <laughs> so look there, there is a lot here which does sort of trivialize the whole gangster thing it is played for laughs there's a shootout scene well, well ronnie explicitly said, evokes the idea that he wanted to be in a west and the scene wants should be a, a western type scene it's supposed to be a, a big shootout and instead of course just a you know lashings of ultra violence do ensue but it's all comical uh, so whether that glamorises it or not, I'm not quite sure because it sort of mocks it at the mm. same time. But at the same time, it's definitely not saying, "Hey, kids, don't do this." It's kind of you know, this looks like fun. You'll get away with it if you can just think of some half-baked plan. Just, just turn up with your brother somewhere. You'll surely lay waste to ten or twelve heavies in a pub somewhere. No worries. <laughs> it reminded me of the scene from the, uh, the Kingsman, actually, where you know the idea that these super agents could walk into a pub and be utterly confident that no matter what, they could take yeah. out everybody in the pub. Um, so I'm curious to know, Hayley, why, why, why did, given what we've just said, why do you feel this was demythologising their mystique? Oh, I think um, I, I think it's it's a complicated thing, like you've kind of said. Like you know, there, there's moments where they're definitely making fun of them. There's moments where they're definitely indulging and glamorising them. But I think what really comes down to it is. There's a line that one of the American mafioso who come over to deal with the craze says at one point, and he basically gives a rundown saying, like, like you, you guys are too famous, you guys are too well-known. Like, they, they want to meet his boss, who's kind of like this shadowy figure, but who essentially runs the entirety of, of um, Italian-American crime in, in America. And this guy just kind of laughs at them when he says, oh, oh we want to meet him. And he's like, no, no one meets him. No one knows who he is. That's why he's good. He's good at his job. But you're not good at your job because, you you know, everyone knows who you are. And I think that's the really... I think that's the thing I find really interesting with a lot of films about criminals who are famous. And they're generally famous because they were rubbish criminals. And everyone knew who they were and they got caught and they got sentenced. And I did think a lot about, particularly in terms of when we talk about the humour in it and you're kind of like, oh, should I be laughing at this? I was thinking about um, uh, Andrew Dominic's Chopper a lot, which is a very funny film, but also an extraordinarily dark film about this figure who essentially mythologised himself and, and beat himself up and said, you know, made him sound far more a fearsome and and terrifying person than what he was and i feel like the, you know the, the crazes presented here are all are almost a kind of a, a kind of an analogy to that sort of criminality where you're famous you're you're drunk on your own um you're drunk on your own success in a way but you become more notorious everyone knows who you are everyone's after you and in the end you you get caught because you got drunk on that 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 you know, sense of power you thought you had, but you didn't have really. And I think that's kind of the thing that 
this film is really playing with and really pulling along and I yeah I personally find that very very fascinating other people might not it's not it's <laughs> a really it's a really interesting observation I mean I made the point before that aspects of this made me feel a bit like I was watching a Guy Ritchie film and and I think that you know you look at the difference between the American gangster and the English gangster both in real life and in cinema and the American gangster in cinema was very glamorous but maybe in real life they were better at lying low where in, in England, the gangster figure, even going back to things like Get Carter or the, or the Long Good Friday, it was kind of a bit grubby and, and, and grotty. You know, the English variation on these American genres are always far grittier. And, you know, the Cray brothers, I know maybe they were the first big gangsters in the UK and they preempted the Guy Ritchie kind of love affair with these kind of laddish louts that then permeated popular culture and now that story is being told in a Guy Ritchie way. So I don't know, maybe there's some brilliant full circle happening here. Yeah, and I found it really interesting that it's Brian Hegeland who is an American director and writer who has taken on this story and you could do the argument of, you know, all of the more glitzy, glamorising Hollywood stylings of it is an American coming in over the top of this British story but then these British characters just keep breaking through it and keep, you know... Re- revealing exactly how silly it is and how, you know, it's, it's, it's not something that's going to last. And I think the end as well, it's really depressing. Like, you know, it, the, the script tries really hard to, like, pull this note of, you know, oh, there's there was hope for them, you know, even right at the end. But I feel like everything else in that kind of scene, particularly from the performances, just squashes that flat. Well, I just dearly wish the film had shown a little bit of British reserve or restraint in the soundtrack, because the, uh, the songs are fine, but they are so so um, gormlessly prosaic in uh, making extremely explicit what was already extremely explicit, which is basically to say they echo exactly what's going on on the screen or has just happened. So I found that extremely frustrating and thought that that didn't seem like a director's choice to me. That Mm. seemed like interference because it seemed so inept. Um, And uh, I found that frustrating. I know, you know, this is a post-Goodfellas gangster film and the Scorsese touch of throwing in popular music to to mirror what's going on in scenes is, you know, it's very widespread now, but this takes it to, for me, almost a nadir. It's just, it's bad. It's it's really um, too... uh, What's... um, too, too matter-of-factly prosaic, gormless, echoing... Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, you, I haven't played any of it on tonight's show. Even though there's some great music in that film, I wasn't inspired to use any of it on the show, so that's testament, I think, yeah, to how, no. how, how little impact the use of music has yeah. in the film. I'm, I'm totally happy to go with, like, stylistically, there's a lot of decisions here that are very in-your-face and unsubtle, but I think it's, it's the sort of film where... You know, you, you could be put off by by its glossy slickness on top, but I think there's a bit of a miasma lurking underneath if you want to look for it. Three. Triple. <sighs> Heaven knows what. It's just been released uh, in Australia on home entertainment. It's the latest film by brothers Joshua and Ben Safdie. They're New York-based independent filmmakers and they were recently subjects of a retrospective at the Melbourne International Film Festival, uh, full disclosure, my employers. Um, I, in fact, missed the entire retrospective. Um, I've only seen, one prior to this film, I've only seen one of their shorts, a film called The Black Balloon, which is a really whimsical blend of cinema verite and magical realism. So... 
I wasn't quite expecting what this film delivered. It stars a non-professional actor named Ariel Holmes who plays a homeless heroin addict named Harley and we see her over the course of this film. It's not really a narrative-driven film. We see her navigate the streets of New York looking for her next hit, trying to get some money together to buy the next hit, looking for shelter at night, trying to befriend people who can help her score heroin and trying to get rid of people who can't help her score. Uh, She's also um, trying to feed another somewhat destructive addiction and that is for her boyfriend, a a brooding, gothy-looking guy played by Caleb Landry-Jones who's appeared in films... He's had roles in... X-Men First Class, and he was in Antiviral, the film made by David Cronenberg's son. He was the lead actor in that. And we kind of have to just take her word for it that they used to be in love because we see very little evidence of him caring for her whatsoever or ever doing anything that could possibly attract her her to him. But but her performance is strong enough to sell the idea that they used to be very much in love. Um, Even though throughout the film he displays some pretty intense emotional cruelty towards her, which manifests in some fairly unpleasant ways. Um, This film does not flinch away at all from its marginalised subject matter to the point that it's a hard-sell film. Because, you know, there's nothing hip or chic about this portrayal of heroin. It doesn't come with a hysterical don't-do-drugs warning at its conclusion either. It's very much a slice-of-life film with a strong commitment to realism. And it really evokes the spirit of John Cassavetti's cinema verite style from the 50s and the 60s. Having the sense that it sort of has some unusual moments of almost romanticism. There's sort of moments I found of intense serenity. I was quite moved by... There's a moment where there's a pan across the New York skyline during a crisp winter's morning and you just get this brief moment of being so happy to be sort of alive in, in that single moment despite everything the world has thrown at you. There's a, a slight otherworldliness in the film due to the... The, the jarring yet somehow appropriate use of ambient electronic music and, and there's a sequence right at the end that may or may not be a, a dream sequence. This film is shot by Sean Price Williams. He's a New York based cinematographer and he's, he's shot most if not all of Alex Ross Perry's film Alex Ross Perry, uh, his recent film Queen of the Earth starring Elizabeth, Elizabeth Moss was also at MIFF this year and he also directed Listen Up Philip which we reviewed on the show earlier this year and he's very much acclaimed for his fluid handheld camera work his use of natural light and both of these characteristics are very much on display in heaven knows what but I think what really makes this film um, have the impact that it has, and the more I think about it, the more it has sat with me, it's really gotten under my skin. It's a film I really like and admire and was quite moved by, even though it's not the easiest watch. I think what really is amazing about this film is the lead performance by Ariel Holmes, and her character is loosely based on herself. So the story is one of the brothers, Josh, I think, um, met her quite randomly in a subway and liked her look and offered her a role in an upcoming film. They got to know each other. He found out about her background as a homeless heroin user and he encouraged her to write down her experiences and the result is a yet-to-be-published memoir. I believe it is going to get published, but that is that was then what they developed the script of this film from. And I must admit, I was quite relieved once the film had finished. So I went and looked her up online and discovered she's now got two more credits on IMDb for upcoming films, including the, the, the next film by Andrea Arnold, who did uh, Fish Tank. So, so this, this extraordinary young woman looks like she's going to actually have a career as an actor as a result of being in this film, which is kind of a meta piece of information that, that makes the film, I think, just that little bit extra, extra special. I'm curious to know what you both made of Heaven Knows What. 
She's quite remarkable. Uh, she is entirely captivating, though it is indeed very difficult to see what she ever saw in uh, her boyfriend. Uh, God, he's just uh, appalling. He's awful, isn't he? He is horrendous. A singularly atrocious human being. And uh, the real-life boyfriend actually would come along on, on set and, and visit her and, and then die during the making of the film. Too. Oh, is that so? Yeah. Ah, grim. I'm I, wondering how much of this film was scripted. Uh, there, there is a, an authenticity about it. Um, though some t- sometimes when you're seeing a film and you're watching an actor perform as if drunk or stoned and you just you sense the performance about it, the performativity, and, you, and sometimes it's just embarrassing. I feel embarrassed for actors if they can't do drunk well or stoned well. Or, but in, in this film, there's that combination of, of extremely authentic, in the, the case of the lead, Ariel Holmes, and in a couple of other instances, people it did seem were sort of acting, and yet they had the deathly power and other aspects of their persona so down pat and, and their... their costuming for want of a better word that it, it seemed authentic in spite of seeming inauthentic but i think that's probably something a lot of uh, addicts grapple with anyway is a quest for authenticity when really your whole life is uh, wholly directed towards one goal daily and one goal alone and that's simply the next hit uh, i i found this extremely grueling watching it's uh, quite relentless uh, it throws you st- headlong into it there's no backstory you're just in it straight away and um, and the, the opening credit sequence is extraordinary. I think um, really distressing because you see a lot of distressed people in some sort of institution. The camera just swoops and glides through this place as various people within it are troubled and share their troubledness with one another. And um, from that point on, it doesn't let go at all. The, the soundtrack dies off a little to, to go more for diegetic sound, and you get a real sense of this is a, a real New York. These are real New York streets. The only thing that makes me suspect sometimes that wasn't entirely guerrilla filmmaking was that no one accidentally looks at the camera, like <laughs> passes by, which you sometimes get in films shot in this way, just as if to stress their authenticity when someone breaks that fourth wall just through being an innocent bystander. Uh, I think it's a strong, strong film, and um, I'm sure we're going to come uh, talk about this yet too. But the digital, digitally shot, we believe you were yes. doing it. Yes, I wasn't um, too sure because yeah. it had a really lovely mm. grainy look, but it apparently did. it was digital. But yeah. I, I still thought it could, I could have gone with it being a bit grainier and a bit more 16 mil. Um, maybe it's not the easiest thing to do anymore. Shoot a, a 16 mil film, get hold of that stock in the first place, and have it developed. But I was reminded of another recently produced uh, New York City set film about heroin addiction, which I don't know if it's made its way to Melbourne at all yet, but it's called Lowdown and it stars John Hawkes and it's a pretty good film. Uh, he plays a jazz musician, a pianist, and it's very much set in, uh, amongst that milieu mm. but the desperation is much the same. The, um, uh, if anything, that film is less glamorous because the people in it um, have pretensions to greater glamour because they're talented uh, whereas everyone in this film seems to be utterly drifting and it's, it's really upsetting. Mm. It, it, it is an enormously upsetting film. I'm kind of in this strange limbo area where I can really recognise the, the the merits of the film, how well uh, it's it's put together, the enormous authenticity of Ariel Holmes and her story, and you do get this feeling that what has been put on screen is is enormously faithful to what she went through, if not in actual events, then in feeling and experience. But I just 
I, I just really did not enjoy watching this at all. I think if, if you're a person who has ever been a drug user or been around people who have been drug users, this film will just put your shoulders about your ears because you will recognise the speech patterns and you will recognise the behaviour and you will recognise the tenor of people. And if that's something that really disturbs you, it, it, it will be an enormously uncomfortable 92 minutes of a watch. So I, I kind of spent the entire time just kind of like on the on the edge of my bed just kind of going oh I really don't want to have to keep watching this but I do and mm. so I, I think it's the sort of film where if you're enormously interested in the filmmakers or Ariel's story um and and just that the film itself is actually very beautiful to watch even though it's you know quite horrific subject matter you know it's beautifully shot has that beautiful graininess to it and i would love to find out how they did it via digital but yeah if there's anything about what we've been talking about where you're kind of like oh this has put me right on edge you're probably okay missing it it's okay i give you permission Yeah, it's it's a really tough film to sell. I mean, because it it is... I don't quite know the time period. Maybe it's a few weeks in the life of a heroin user. I kind of like the fact that the film didn't go down some routes that it could have. Like, it could have got into some really nasty territory that I'm sure does happen to people who are living this lifestyle. I... um, (laughs) You know, it doesn't go Requiem for a Dream, mm. for example, when I saw the, the film I was sort of vaguely alluding to when I talked about a heroin film that goes hysterical, don't do drugs message. I like the banality of this mm. film in a way, the day-to-dayness. There's sort of a, a grottiness, there, there's moments of crisis and intense ordeal, but mostly it's just sort of getting through the day and, uh, and, 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 and the nights, and I think that's what I, I enjoyed about it, and yeah. just that captivating performance from someone who really knew what this person had lived. Yeah, I think what I really did appreciate about it was the fact that it is not, it doesn't have that hysterical tenor that a lot of drug movies have where we're going to take you on this wild adventure and all these people are going to do terrible things and oh, people are dying and oh, it's horrible, don't do drugs, kids. And it's like that kind of like heightened frenzied terror for the entire duration of it. This is very very slice of life, very banal in a lot of ways. Like, you just see a lot... There's a lot of conversations of people just talking crap, just talking crap on top of crap and interrupting each other with more crap and, you know, arguments about backpacks and, and, and you know, who's staying at so-and-so's house. And it's enormously authentic, but, yeah, just discomforting at the same time. Distressing. <laughs> mm. And that, on, on, on that distressing note, an anecdote about people talking crap over the top of each other, that brings <laughs> us to the end <laughs> of Plato's Cave. We looked tonight, we, tonight we looked at Crimson Peak. That's on general release through Universal Pictures. Uh, Legend is on general release through Studio Canal. And if you're, if you're up for heaven knows what, and I'll recommend it, that's available on Home Entertainment through Accent Film Entertainment. You've been listening to myself, Thomas Cordwell, with Cerise Howard. We're hopefully going to have Alexandra with us next week. But, Hayley Inch, thank you once again for filling in on Plato's Cave. Oh, always such a pleasure. It's a pleasure for us as well. Thank you. Oh, huzzah. <laughs> we will be back next week, as I mentioned. I think we're going to be looking at the Lobster sure. and Bridge of Spies. So that's going to be fun. Until then, good night. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.